Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Hi, how are you doing? Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. This episode is a little different from normal because today I'm out on the road, hopefully for the first of many episodes. And I'm in Dublin and I have the pleasure of welcoming to the podcast Vivian Gearan. Vivian is Adjunct Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin, member of the Council of Europe Council for Penological Cooperation, former head of the Irish Probation Service and current chair of the Irish Association of Social Workers. We're going to be discussing social work in Ireland, the challenges and opportunities facing the profession, the importance of cross-border working and probation as a social work service. But before we get into all of that, hello Vivian, it's great to have you on Let's Talk Social Work. How are you keeping? I'm keeping well, Andy, thanks very much, and I'm delighted to be on Let's Talk Social Work. I'm looking forward to the Irish Association of Social Work, or IASWA's, 50th anniversary celebration this evening and also to our national conference which is on here tomorrow with a focus on poverty, inequality, social justice and anti-poverty strategy and I'm particularly happy that you're going to be one of our speakers at our conference tomorrow. Thanks, it's lovely to be down, um, it's lovely to be asked and there's, yes, there's a huge amount to talk about, huge amount of work that Basel and Northern Ireland are doing in Northern Ireland in terms of challenging inequality and uh, anti-poverty work. Let's move that on then. I want to know what the situation is like here in the South. Poverty uh, exacerbates so many social problems that social workers work to help people overcome. How is the cost of living crisis affecting social workers and the individuals and families social workers support here in the Republic of Ireland? Uh, well, I always feel that poverty is in, in the background of a lot of, uh, or so much social work. Uh, somebody a while back said to me, and I think it's a very good description, that poverty is like the wallpaper uh, of the context of social work. So it's there frequently in, in the background. Um, having said that, for most of the population, the cost of living issues can seem like something a lot of the time that affects other people. Um, but more recently, and particularly o- over the last year or so, the cost of living uh, and, you know, whether it's food poverty or fuel poverty or whatever, and general cost of living is something that's that's on everybody's lips and everybody is concerned about whether whether one is using social work services or providing them or you know, just otherwise, uh, any and all citizens are impacted by it. I always think the interest, it's an interesting thing to talk about fuel poverty or food poverty. It's a way I sometimes think we kind of divide up a massive problem, which is called poverty, into trying to make it in some way more kind of, uh, how would I say, manageable. Because if you can't afford to feed yourself, you're in poverty, you're not in food poverty. You know, if you can't afford to heat your home, you're arguably in poverty. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, is that in terms of the South, in terms of government and how they're addressing issues, do they tend to think in those terms of food poverty, fuel poverty, or is there any sort of overall anti-poverty strategy in the South? I think we used to look, uh, even up to fairly recently, at those particular segments of poverty, like fuel poverty or whatever. Um, 
But more recently, as I was saying, over, over the last year or so, uh, the cost of living in general, particularly the cost of uh, foodstuffs and energy and so on, has has been increasing so much that people in general in the population are much more aware of it and much more impacted by it. So all of those areas uh, in terms of the cost of, of living are issues that affects everybody really in the country. And it's an interesting one. I made an episode a while back with uh, Dominic Waters. Dominic is a member of Baza UK and he's a, he's a spokesperson uh, and campaigner in terms of food poverty issues. And Dominic, the way he addresses the issue is, you know, there has always been a cost of living crisis for poor people. It's just now that middle class people are starting to feel the pinch that we're now discussing it. Um, more widely and, and it's getting the attention that it always should have deserved, I suppose. You're you're absolutely right. And, and I think that there always has been a poverty crisis. And then within that poverty crisis, on an ongoing basis, people who have particular additional disadvantage uh, would suffer more in general terms and general times uh, insofar as poverty is concerned. So if, if you have a disability or if you're socially excluded in, in some way, um, I, I, I believe you're, you're even more exposed to poverty in general. So you're right, that, ha- that has always been there. And people uh, with a specific additional needs have always suffered that extra layer of hardship. And you're also right in the sense that uh, middle class people and, and the population in general are just much more aware of it because it's hitting everybody in their pockets at the moment in terms of uh, the cost of living. In terms of um, the the association, the Irish Association of Social Workers and, and maybe the social work profession more widely in the South, is there that real sense of social work as a vehicle for social justice? Um, is there a real awareness of the, the injustice that poverty presents to, to society? Absolutely. And that's why the uh, focus of our national conference tomorrow, um, and we were very strongly aware and committed to the theme of anti-poverty practice, uh, considering the implications of poverty and and inequality and social injustice on the people that that we work with. Um, So that's always been there. That's always been part of what social work is about in terms of our values and so on. But uh, it's, it's particularly acute at the moment and something that uh, social work across the board, working in all the different areas that social workers do work, that, uh, it, you know, is something that has, uh, has been to some extent in the background at, at, at times, although always there, but uh, really is more to the fore. And uh, as I said a minute ago, if the people we work with have additional needs, uh, experience additional inequality or whatever, that uh, really heightens and exacerbates the challenges that they're trying to live with and deal with on a day-to-day basis. And from a UK perspective, you could talk of a housing crisis. We talk about generation rent with young people, you know, when people here priced out, completely priced out of the housing market and um, having to pay, you know, incredibly high rents. I know that in the South, I know that in Dublin in particular, there is a very, very acute housing crisis. Um, how's that affecting people's quality of life? And, and actually, more importantly, how's that affecting social cohesion and communities? The housing or homelessness crisis is, in my view, the most serious crisis in Ireland right now and has been for a number of years. Um, that's not, not to say by any means it's the only challenge that we're all dealing with, but it's, for me, the biggest crisis, if not scandal, uh, in the country. And it 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 
affects and adds to the difficulties that people, if you like, at the bottom of the ladder in 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 terms of social, um, you know, socio socio economic advantage or rather disadvantage, uh, experience, and the housing crisis or specifically homelessness then. Uh, multiplies the other problems that so many people have have to deal with. I just heard on the radio this morning the head of one of our uh, drugs and homeless charities here in Ireland, in Dublin, Merchants Key Ireland, and uh, they were speaking about the massive increase, I think something of the order of 55% increase over the last year uh, of people presenting to their drug services who are also homeless. So that's a 55% increase on the on the previous year uh, so homelessness uh, which is caused by the the housing shortage and crisis is adding to a whole lot of problems as well as being a really significant one in itself and is that a dublin centric issue or is that something which affects the whole country unfortunately i think it's affecting more and more if not all of the country uh, right now and that's probably caused or added to by a number of factors uh, including because uh, over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, many people who were working in Dublin uh, and uh, also living in Dublin moved back home to uh, whatever part of the country they originally lived in or came from. And as a result, the uh, the availability of housing accommodation right across the country has tightened uh, but in saying that, it hasn't got any easier in Dublin as well. And uh, right across the country, it continues to deteriorate. That's not something I'd even factored into thinking. I mean, I love Dublin. Dublin's a great city. If anyone hasn't been to Dublin, you should come. I'm not getting paid by the Irish Tourist Board to say that. It's a fantastic, fantastic place. But I don't feel like Dublin loves me. And when I, what I mean is, you know, the, my family and, uh, you know, in terms of our situation, I don't think we could live in Dublin in terms of the jobs that we have. It is. It seems that people are just priced out, you know, almost almost completely. And that it's that issue then of kind of social cohesion. Uh, Vivian, I'm, I'm keen to know about, you know, in terms of like neighbourhoods and communities, um, you know, because those are so important in terms of people's sense of place and sense of value. Um how has that been affected as as young people aren't able to live in the area that they grew up in? You're absolutely right again, Andy, I think in the, in the sense that uh, traditionally people would have found as, as they grew up and grew into adulthood and had children and so on, that they very much depended on the local community in which they lived. And particularly if they had a stake and a previous uh, history and knowledge and connection within that community uh, that was you know that was very much a part of the supports that that people had um, my own late mother used to always say that you can live without your family but you can't live without your neighbours and I often think of that uh, in the sense that she was right that you really need to have a strong community around you if you are to have a happy and contented um, life in general um, and when people have to move out of uh, proximity to the 
community in which they grew up that that does have an impact my my son for for example at the moment uh, born and raised in Dublin is currently in the process of buying an apartment in County Kildare uh, which is a neighbouring county to Dublin but it's still at some remove from the area where he would have grown up and that's purely on the basis of economics it's it's uh, it's one of the only areas that he could afford to actually buy an apartment and he certainly couldn't afford to do that in the uh, greater Dublin area and thousands and thousands of people are in the same situation if they're in a in a position to get their own accommodation, whether it's to buy it or rent it. People are having to move further and further away from uh, from Dublin or from from the area or community that they grew up, and that uh, in turn causes problems uh, in relation to having to commute to you know where they work. Uh, as a result, you know when people are spending long time uh, traveling to and from work, they they don't have the time to get involved in their local communities and society in general is all the poorer for that. Can you hazard a guess at what's driving the housing crisis? Simplistically put, I think it's it's a lack of supply. Uh, and uh, secondary to that, or, but very much connected, is years of neglect. So unfortunately, during the so-called boom years, which should be called something else, definitely, uh, we were building far too many houses purely on the basis of speculation and, you know, property development and uh, people making or wanting to make profit from all of that. Um, And when all of that stopped and the recession hit, uh, there was a subsequent period of years of neglect when we haven't been uh, able to or actually building enough units of accommodation. And at the same time, our population in Ireland has been increasing quite significantly, which is a good thing. But uh, as a result, we have a chronic lack of supply, uh, as well as a whole lot of other things, I guess, going on vis-a-vis developers, you know, buying up places, uh, land banks and um, properties uh, still to make money out of because there is a shortage. I was only reading yesterday, it was in a publication called The View Digital, and I'll include a link in the show notes to that publication. Um, it was looking at the housing crisis in Ireland, um, looking at issues in the north and the south. And I only found out from reading that, that the sell-off of um, of social housing in the south predated the sort of the Thatcher initiatives in the UK. So I think it went back to 1967, when government in the south began selling off what was social housing to uh, private buyers. Is there any investment in social housing going on at the moment, Vivian? It, 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 it seems to me that there's far too little um, and people who are older than I am often mention to me that they remember uh, the 50s and the 60s in Ireland when local authorities were directly building social housing and that doesn't happen to the same extent anymore. Unfortunately, I think as well, local authorities are actually competing with individual buyers and so on uh, in the housing market because the local authorities are increasingly buying Uh, within the private market houses that will be used and are used for social housing. So unfortunately, on the one hand, local authorities are not building uh, units of accommodation in the way that they used to. And at the same time, they're buying up and competing with first time or second time or whatever uh, house and apartment buyers and not really helping the supply chain enough. And in terms of the knock-on impacts then for the profession that you represent uh, in social work in Ireland, how is that affecting uh, younger social workers? You know, I imagine in certain parts of the country, again, Dublin in particular, many social workers would be priced out of buying or even renting. 
Is that having a knock-on impact in terms of where young, newly qualified social workers are able to take up work? Yes, for sure. In a, in a general sense, I don't know how young people manage nowadays to either rent or buy their own accommodation. Uh, you know, things things have really changed dramatically since I was their age. And just earlier this week, for example, I was speaking with a young uh, master's in social work student uh, who is studying in Dublin, but he's not from Dublin. And he was describing the real hardship that he and his uh, fellow students are going through in trying to attend, you know, college, uh, trying to ensure that they have enough money to live uh, and particularly then when they go on on, on um, social work placement, uh, having to deal with all of that. So they're either having to rent accommodation away from home or travel long distances. Um, and if, if the situation is bad for social work students or social workers, um, it, we can only imagine that the people who use social work services are impacted in even more complicated and more difficult ways. Now, I want to move on to talk about international level cooperation. So lifting it from the domestic level, Ireland has long had a reputation for a particularly internationalist outlook. And I'm guessing that's at least partly due to the fact that it's a small country and cooperation with others can lead to benefits that may otherwise be unrealised. Now, one issue that you have written about, Vivian, is about uh, the relatively recent lack of engagement by the UK in the Council of Europe body that you participate in. That's the Council for Penological Cooperation. The Council of Europe is entirely separate from the European Union, but you've suggested that the UK's disengagement may be a casualty of Brexit thinking. What I want to know is what is lost when countries choose not to participate in bodies established to ensure cross-border cooperation? Well, first of all, I've I've always been committed personally to international cooperation, and and I think Ireland in general, and certainly the organisations that I've worked with or been connected with, have shared that commitment to international cooperation. I fundamentally believe that we all can and we must learn so much from each other, and we need to do that at the international level as well as nationally and regionally, and so on. In terms of penological cooperation, and what I mean by that is cooperation in relation to how we uh, manage and run uh, prisons and probation specifically, and how we organise those services. And the United Kingdom, over, over many decades, has contributed so much to the development of theory and practice and standards in penology, in prisons and probation. And... What I observed more recently, particularly since Brexit, seems to me to be as if the United Kingdom is saying no to everything that has Europe in its name, which is unfortunate. And clearly the United Kingdom has left uh, the European Union, but they haven't left the Council of Europe. They were, the, the, the United Kingdom was a founding member of the Council of Europe, which is dedicated to human rights, democracy and the rule of law. And as I said, the United Kingdom, through so many individuals and organisations, has previously contributed a huge amount to that international cooperation. But what I observe in the last uh, few years is a drop off in that level of cooperation coming from the United Kingdom. And I really would like to see uh, that cooperation from the United Kingdom being developed. And that's that's what I wrote about, really, an invitation to the UK to get back on board as far as the Council of Europe and specifically penological cooperation is concerned. 
There has been talk recently from, I was going to say the current government. It's hard to tell what the current government is. This is uh, the 20th of October that we're making this episode. On the way down on the train to Dublin, I got WhatsApp messages telling me that Liz Truss had resigned. So when we talk about the current government, it's all a bit up in the air. But there has been talk about withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights, which is to do with the Council of Europe. That's not a European Union um, initiative. And going back historically, Britain was at the at the centre of the development of the European Convention on Human Rights. So it is a very worrying trend when you, from a social work perspective, uh, a profession which is absolutely embedded in the promotion of human rights, to see a government trying to step back from um, such a, a firmly established and incredibly important international convention? Human rights is, is fundamental to social work. And uh, even as I say that, I'm thinking human rights is fundamental to every, to every aspect of our lives, but particularly as a core value of social work itself, uh, human rights has to be at the centre. And it's just unfortunate that I think the UK... Uh, sees the outworking of some elements of the European Convention on Human Rights and specifically what I'm referring to is the decisions and judgments of the European Court of Human Rights which you know rules and makes judgments based on the on the convention it's it's really a pity that uh, it, it would seem to me that the United Kingdom should uh, see this so-called being told what to do by the European Court of Human Rights uh, as something that uh, isn't going to or won't wash with uh, UK government or governments. Uh, and I really think it's a it's a retrograde step. It's something I think social work, but all of us as citizens uh, everywhere should be really concerned about. Now, obviously, not everyone in the UK uh, has an anti-European attitude. I mean, even people that voted for Brexit, many, many would say they are very fond of Europe. And the 2016 referendum was a 52% leave, 48% remain vote. And it's so important to remember that. But I'm just kind of thinking about that attitude that some people do have in the UK, which is the idea of the European Court of Human Rights telling their country what to do. How, how is that viewed then from an Irish perspective? I'm guessing there isn't that same kind of um, vein of thought in, in the Irish psyche. I don't think so. Um, and while while nobody as an individual or as a group or as a government, I guess, likes to be hauled over the coals or to have the finger wagged at them, um, the whole point about having things like the Convention on Human Rights or whatever uh, type of standards they are is that they benefit the entire population. Um, you know, Ireland as a country has had judgments made against it uh, over the years, but the whole idea of that is that it makes us a better country, a better society. I'm thinking about David Norris's case that he brought to the European Court uh, of Human Rights in relation to homosexuality uh, and that he won. And that led in turn to so much change in Ireland. And I'm, I'm guessing for the government of the day, that may have been an embarrassment to lose a case like that. Um, it may have been, to use a colloquial term, a pain. But um, I don't think anybody in Ireland at this point and at this remove from that judgment was would feel that it was anything but uh, but appropriate and good that it happened. And similar cases uh, have happened, whether it's in relation to Ireland or other countries. And really, it's it's so important in all aspects of our lives that we do have bodies that look into what we're doing, uh, that we're not just talking to each other, that we we hold ourselves accountable to 
standards that are agreed and worked out. And uh, the standards like the European Convention on Human Rights are in the area that I have worked in, whether it's the European probation rules or the prison rules. You know, they're developed and they're agreed by the now 46 member states of the Council of, of Europe. So they're not imposed in that sense. They're developed by the representatives of all of the countries contributing to their development. Vivian, you mentioned a few minutes back the importance of working in collaboration at a European level and how much can be learned. Have you an example of something you could share that you learned from working with European partners that you otherwise just wouldn't have known about? Yeah, from the, from the area that I have spent most of my career in, which is probation, um, I think what happens in countries like Ireland and probably the UK as well, uh, where something like a probation system has been in place for over 100 years, uh, we can end up doing what we do because it's always been done that way. And I have found over the years of contact that I've had through the Council of Europe bodies and so on, uh, also with, with organisations like the Confederation of European Probation, the CEP, um, that in, particularly in countries where, where probation is much younger and has only developed more recently. For example, the Slovenian probation service was only established you know, within the last few years. And when you have a country like that, where they're, they're, they're starting from scratch, they're very keen to learn from countries like Ireland or the UK or other countries where a probation system has been in place for a long time. But ironically, I have found that we have a whole lot to learn from countries like uh, Slovenia or Croatia or Serbia or wherever that have only more recently developed their probation service um, because they're looking at how they develop it, how they structure it uh, with new eyes. We, we in Ireland had a lot of cooperation, for example, with the probation service in Romania and, uh, you know, ways that they would have implemented community service would have differed a little bit in, in, in contrast to how it was developed and, and delivered in Ireland. Also, they would have, um, you know, their, uh, how they recruit staff, their legislation and so on would be somewhat uh, different. And uh, I have found it really instructive and helpful to uh, go that journey with them in, in the sense that, uh, you know, seeing it from, from their perspective, starting from a clear slate, uh, does have an impact on how somebody like Ireland, which has a long-standing probation service, uh, continues to go about its work. And Vivian, I'm really keen to talk more about probation very shortly. But just before we do, I want to talk about North-South cooperation in Ireland. So although Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland are constitutionally two separate jurisdictions, there is significant cross-border cooperation on a wide range of issues from trade and industry to healthcare and social work. I want to know what you regard as the benefits of improved cross-border cooperation on the island and what opportunities you see for improving cooperation in the years ahead. Well, the first point I'd make is that North-South cooperation for me has always been the most important uh, area of cross-border cooperation, particularly in the context of the Irish Probation Service's work with the Probation Board for Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, I worked for three decades as a social worker in the Irish Probation Service and North-South cooperation has always been and continues to be critical uh, if for no other reason than we share the same island, the same landmass. Uh, you know, people travel whether it's for work or whatever. 
Um, and we would have had people from Northern Ireland working uh, in the Irish Probation Service and, and vice versa. The One of the critical developments, I think, in relation to probation work on the island was the development of the Irish Probation Journal, which I was very much involved with colleagues from Northern Ireland in initiating in 2004. And that's, that journal is still published every year uh, on a cooperative basis by the PBNI and the Irish Probation Service. Um, that's just one practical example of, of the cooperation. Um, but through the journal and in other ways, um, the two uh, probation services on the island have always shared, you know, good practice. We've worked on cooperative projects. We would have held regular north-south uh, management meetings and so on, and also cooperated at a uh, at a case level, if you like, because people under supervision in the north or in the south would move uh, across the now thankfully invisible border and would have to be managed and taken up by the service on the other side. So north-south, you know, even though the other areas of cooperation, whether it's with the rest of the United Kingdom or the rest of Europe, um, have been and continue to be very important. But for me, north-south is really the starting point for cross-border and uh, cross-jurisdictional cooperation. And thankfully, I've been able to continue that, as have my previous colleagues in IASWA, through our collaboration with Baswa Northern Ireland, uh, through a whole myriad of ways, similarly joint projects, sharing practice, uh, you know, exploring developments. We're, we're currently in the process of developing a reciprocal associate membership for North and South. So there's there's just so much to to learn and to share with each other, uh, if for no other reason, because we all live on this shared island together. And you mentioned the invisible border. How significant was the introduction of that frictionless invisible border for your work? The introduction of the frictionless and invisible border was very significant, um, uh, both in terms of the workers, social workers, probation officers and so on, and also in terms of the service users could move much more easily across the uh, uh, then or now invisible border. Um, I, I, I feel I also you know need to keep in mind the fact that the border didn't just become invisible of its own accord. It was part of the peace process following on from the Good Friday Agreement and the various institutions that were established on a north-south basis as a result uh, of that process. And I would have been part of, in, uh, in conjunction with my colleagues from the PBNI, on, the, uh, on various working groups that were established on foot of the uh, agreements um, sorry, PBNI, that's Probation Board for Northern Ireland. Yeah, so the um, cooperation that that uh, we would have had and then developed as a result of the Good Friday Agreement and the various cross-border bodies that were established to uh, deliver on uh, aspects of that peace process. So, for example, the head of the Probation Board for Nor Northern Ireland and I as the head of the Irish Probation Service would have been members of the Public Protection Advisory Group. And there were various uh, cross-border advisory groups set up to, uh, as the name suggests, advise the uh, relevant ministries and government departments and ministers themselves about the, the management of, in, 
in this case, the management of probation services and the management of offenders in the community north and south. You, until very recently, were head of the Irish Probation Service, um, and I'm shortly going to be making an episode specifically exploring criminal justice social work. It's actually going to be next in line after this episode. And I'm keen to get your perspective on this really important area of social work. When you were in that post, you mandated that all new probation officers must be registered social workers. Why do you consider it so important that social work is central to probation? Well, on these on these islands, uh, you know, between the United Kingdom and Ireland, social work was the historical base of of probation work, um, and that continues to be the case very strongly in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Scotland, and that's really important in my view. Things took a, took a different turn in Britain, in England, and Wales, um, where social work was. Uh, very much the qualification for people working in that probation service, but that that changed uh, some some decades ago. Although I think I think it's moving moving back towards a better place in that regard. Um, regard. But in 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 Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Ireland, we have always had that strong link to uh, social work, and I I have many uh, favourite writers uh, on probation and social work. And one of those is Professor Rob Canton, who uh, I was reading one of his uh, books just recently published earlier this year on punishment. And in describing the history of probation, and I think Rob very often describes what I struggle to describe um, simply and straightforwardly. And he pointed out that one response to misbehaviour might be to offer the benevolent influence of a wise head to guide and counter temptations fecklessness or influences of the wrong sort uh, and it's it's probably familiar uh, as a concept always and everywhere and that's that's in a sense where where probation started at a very simplistic way of trying to uh, steer people who had gone wrong back on onto the right uh, track and in Ireland the 1907 probation of offenders act which uh, famously, I, I would guess, uh, urges probation officers to advise, assist and befriend those under their supervision is still the, the foundational and operational piece of legislation in Ireland. So probation has always operated, certainly in Ireland, in parallel with social work. Over the years, over the decades from, the, from its foundation in 1907, it, it became and has become more scientific and evidence-based and right up to now where a lot of talk internationally in in probation circles uh, focuses on what are now called core correctional practices so it's it's the area those areas of practice and skills and so on and approaches that um, probation officers need to bring to their work if they're going to be effective and they include effective use of authority pro-social modeling motivational interviewing problem solving counselling, cognitive restructuring, reinforcing anti-criminal attitudes, brokering services, use of community resources and development of, of relationships. And in a, in, in a uh, seminar that I participated in last year, another one of my favourite writers in this area, Dr Peter Rayner from Wales, uh, pointed out rightly, in my opinion, that those uh, what we call modern core correctional practices are social work skills and always have been. 
And what I'm keen to know is whether there is any sort of tension inherent in probation that, that isn't present in other areas of social work. So I'm thinking of the fact that probation officers have the responsibility of implementing sanctions and measures in the community on offenders. So as well as a care element, there is a control element. Does that set probation apart from other areas of social work? I do think the care and control tension is particularly strong in probation, but I do also believe that it exists in many other areas of social work practice. And, um, for example, the well-known writer on social work, Neil Thompson, uh, has commented on that and says that the care and control dilemma and balance is through a lot of social work. And I, I would I would firmly believe that because if you look at areas like child protection, uh, many aspects of mental health, social work and other areas, there is often a need to balance a care and a control imperative. And that's because as well as looking after or trying to help the welfare of the individual client or service user that we're working with, uh, in this case, um, within the probation service, we also have to be conscious of the welfare of other people uh, within the system, whether they're the victims of crime or wider society. Yeah, so it's that wider society, the care and protection of wider society that I think is is so important there. Um, I asked previously about your work mandating that uh, probation officers uh, must be social workers, but that's not currently a legal requirement. Legislation is in train that would make it a statutory requirement, and that's the Community Sanctions Bill 2014, which makes me think it's been a, in, in passage a long time. Yeah, it has. It's it's the, the heads of the bill were published by the then Minister for Justice in 2014. And it really, the 2014 Community Sanctions Bill, uh, as, as it was set out in those heads of bill, would really bring community sanctions and probation specifically in Ireland into the 21st century. Unfortunately, the the bill hasn't ever since 2014 been high enough on the list of priorities for government to have it actually prog- you know, progress uh, as it should. Earlier this year, the current Minister for Justice, um, Helen McEntee, TD, among other commitments, uh, reiterated her commitment to progressing the Community Sanctions Bill and I think that would really, really be a huge uh, positive step uh, in probation work in Ireland and specifically in the context of our conversation because it would uh, make it a legal requirement that probation officers would have to be registered as social workers. So they do, people joining the Irish Probation Service now do have to be registered social workers, but that's being managed on an administrative basis as things stand. And would it make it a material change then in that regard? I know you talked about sanctions within the community, that's another issue, but in terms of the the decisions that you implemented as the head of probation service, would putting those on a legislative footing make any significant difference? I believe they would because I believe legislation gives a clear message uh, of what what a country's, a, a society's, a government's intention is in terms of policy. I, I, I would often make the point that legislation isn't the be all and end all. And, you know, particularly if if we end up with legislation that's weak or poorly drafted or whatever, it can sometimes make a situation worse than it previously was. But in the context of the issue we're discussing now, uh, 
in relation to qualifications for probation officers, I think having it enshrined in legislation that they need to be registered as social workers would be uh, a really positive and effective step. And Vivian, what I'm curious to know is whether there's any research, so either in Ireland or globally, which explores whether reoffending rates are affected by social work, sorry, probation officers being social work qualified. Does it have an impact in terms of reoffending? I'm I'm not sure if there's been specific research uh, with regard to uh, whether being actually social workers makes a big difference. But there is a whole lot of research that shows that uh, where probation workers implement evidence-based practice and adopt the type of approaches that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, um, incorporating motivational interviewing, problem solving, you know, uh, appropriate types of counselling and so on, um, that that those approaches, which, as I said, Dr. Peter Rayner, Professor Rayner, has, uh, and, and others have identified, are exactly coterminous with social work skills. Where those approaches are implemented, the impact in terms of reoffending, is very positive. And Vivian, if we can loop all the way back around to where we began our conversation, the cost of living crisis, are you concerned that increasing financial pressures and rising poverty could have an impact on rates of offending? I think the whole area of inequality and poverty uh, is central. As I mentioned at the very start of our conversation, it's part of the wallpaper of the work that probation officers do. Um, so any any deterioration in 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 relation to that issue will have an impact and will result in uh, more offending having said that i think we need to be conscious that society in general puts a lot of emphasis on individual responsibility uh, insofar as crime is concerned but so much of the factors contributing to crime and offending and so on is also down to social injustice and inequalities and we can't we can't say in a situation where more and more people are below the poverty line that they all still remain personally responsible for everything in their lives. Um, there can be a whole lot of uh, factors involved in why somebody might offend or reoffend, but um, the, uh, pushing people or allowing people to remain or to move further into areas of poverty and, and inequality is only going to make the situation worse. Vivian, it's been an absolute joy to interview you. Uh, it's been lovely to make an episode uh, face-to-face as well, not always just having to do this over Zoom. Thank you so much for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work. And thank you very much, Andy. Mm-hmm.